Hello and welcome to the Houston Vineyard Podcast. We sincerely hope that this message is a blessing to you. Enjoy. Morning. Hey, it is like, this is great. You guys are like the legit crew because this is the first weekend of spring break. And I know for parents that have kids in school, like Friday hit and there was a mix of delight and terror. Um... (laughs) The delight being that for the, the, the coming week, we don't have to get up at five in the morning to get our kids on the bus. And the terror is for the coming week, they don't go to school. So, so, so we are the brave few that are still in Houston. So enjoy Houston. There's going to be lots of space. People are like out. And it's, it's good. It's good to feel like life is happening again in a way that feels more familiar than it has in the last two years. Uh, we're in this series, uh, Echoes, and, and we're looking at the life of David and, and sort of the way that he lives his life through different peaks and valleys and how the way in which he lives his life, the formational practices that he has, the things that he does to posture himself towards the heart of God allows himself to be an echo of the heart of God Brothers, It reverberates in him and then out of him in a way that is pretty spectacular. And so today we're going to be looking in, uh, we'll be in second, or 1 Samuel 20, and, and we'll be looking at uh, some of the significance of his relationship with Jonathan, and we'll get into this in a minute, and I'm excited about it. But before we start, let's pray. Father, you're good, exceedingly good. You're good when things are good, and you're good when things aren't. You're good when life makes sense, and you're good when it doesn't. You're good in our pain and in our joy. You are good, and we thank you. That's how you speak to us today. Your word is such a gift. It's alive and applicable to our lives. Speak through it, please. We thank you for the incredible sacrifice that is your son, Jesus. And how it's through his life and death and resurrection that your word takes its proper perspective in our lives. And Holy Spirit, we recognize you're here. Speak to us, Spirit of the living God. Bring us words of conviction or comfort where they're needed. And we ask this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. All right, I'm going to give us a little bit of a background of David because I realized this last week as I was getting up here and I, I don't know, maybe you guys don't have this experience uh, where you speak, you know, a couple dozen Sundays a year and, and you prepare intensely with a group of people to put out series and you'll have a Sunday where you go and be like, Man, that was it. That was the stuff. Like, like, it's gonna. We're gonna rank the messages of the year. That's got to go at the top, and it's like crickets, right? And then there's other Sundays where you get up and you're in your head. And last Sunday, as I was getting up and I started talking about David, I'm like, wait a minute. I don't think I've given any context to who David is, and I'm just making this giant assumption that everybody knows who David is because of the stories of David in the Bible and because I know it and. And so I, I was very aware of it in the moment. I was trying to fill in pieces as I went. 
And so today I'm going to get ahead of the game. So I'm not doing that. We're looking at David and Jonathan. And I'm going to explain these people and their context historically a little bit. So we know the people of God, the Israelites, and, and the, the nation that God was. They were the, his people. He was their God. And at some point, we talked about this last week, they said they wanted a real king, like a, like a fleshy king, like bones, you know, muscles, the whole deal. And Saul was chosen. And so Saul's the king. And so we don't need to go too deep into who Saul is. But Saul had a son whose name was Jonathan. And Jonathan was the next in line to be king. So we know how these sort of royal families work. Like it's next in line. Unless you do something really bad. And then you might like not be. But you're still in the royal family. But Jonathan is next in line. And Jonathan, at the point in this story that we're going to see, not only next in line in, in the kingdom to be king of Israel, but he has also had more responsibility given to him than he's ever had. So he's in charge of a thousand troops in the army of his father. He is not only next in line, but he is a leader. He is on the battlefield. He is showing maturity. He is a, a, not only a political figure, but he is a national figure of importance. He's a big deal. So not only is he like the king, the, the kid of the king, he's the kid of the king making good. He's a soldier, and not only a soldier, he's leading soldiers. He has weight to him. Have you ever walked into a room and, and you see somebody that just has weight to them? And I'm not talking like girth, like because that's every room. Um, but where you're like, oh, that person's something. Jonathan's something. He's, he's got something on him. And David, at this point of the story, David is a shepherd. He is the youngest of a bunch of uh, brothers who, in the hierarchy of the time, means he's essentially uh, surplus to requirements. Like, they are going to do... Everything, the brothers are going to get the best of this and the best of that. And then David just gets stuff. And not only is he not a, like a figure that has weight to him when, when, he, is, when he is anointed king. Because here's what happens. Saul, as a king, does stuff and God's like, this is not what I'm looking for. So he talks to a prophet because the prophets in this time are the ones that sort of speak. They're a mouthpiece of God. And he speaks to the prophet. And he says, I'm going to send you to get the next king and let him know that he's the next king. So he goes to the house of David's family and, and he, he lines up, they line up all the brothers, like by age. And like, there's this like, here's the muscly one, but here's like, these the brains of the operation. And this guy's, he seems carefree, but man, he'll, he'll kill you with a, a toothpick. Like he's just brutal. And, and they, he, the, the prophet goes through the whole deal and none of them. He says, don't you have any other sons? And they're like, well, yeah, I mean, we have this one. Uh, we put him out with the sheep like a, three towns over. He's just weird. He's like a little off. Like he's always like dancing and prancing around and playing instruments and like singing at stuff. And, and then he tells these fantastical stories about how he killed, like he killed wild animals with like a little tiny rock and, and, good, like, and, and his thoughts or whatever. I don't know. He's just a... Bring him. 
So bring this scrawny little, you know, chirpy dancing, you know, really bad zookeeper because he keeps killing the animals. And the prophet says, that's him. And he anoints him, says, you're going to be king. Here's what's great about it. As Jonathan is in the kingdom, he is being prepared to be king. He is sitting at the royal table. He is in meetings of strategy. He is watching his father deal with things both nationally and abroad. He is educated in ways that no one around him would be. He is educated in war, in in diplomatic relations, in how to run and manage a kingdom. He's, He's being educated in this. And David now is anointed king and he's back in the field. Like dancing with the sheep. And as the story goes, uh, David goes to the front of the battle where Israel is fighting the Philistines. And, and there's a giant who's making fun of them. And he goes to give, take lunch to his brothers, essentially. He is the first Uber Eats. <laughs> and they didn't even tip. It was horrible. But in that, in his... Naivete, his belief that everything is possible, his belief, and beyond anything, his utter confidence of who God is, his deep and profound love for the creator, and his, the inability in his own imagination to believe that there is anything that God cannot do, and that God loves him and his people. In that, he goes, why isn't anybody going to, like, challenge this giant? And the king, who's Saul, says, well, you do it. And they give him all the armor, and he can't do it. He's like, I can't wear all this armor. So he goes out in his shepherd stuff. I don't know what shepherd stuff is, but I imagine, I mean, it's not, I, get, I mean, it's like probably a kilt. Because I don't want to say he was wearing a skirt, but he was wearing, I don't know. I've seen pictures, their drawings, they're not accurate, whatever. He's, he's in shepherd's gear, and he has his slingshot deal, and he chucks a rock and kills the giant. And Saul goes, oh, well, you're on my team now. They cannot be more diametrically opposed, Jonathan and David, in upbringing, in promise, in potential, in earthly authority, in weight. If you walked into a room and there was Jonathan here and there was David here, nobody would look at David and go, that guy has weight. But they would about Jonathan. But here's what they shared in common. They both desperately loved God more than anything. It was the the central part of the life of David and the central part of the life of Jonathan. All that Jonathan had was secondary to his love for God. And so what we find in this is this these two people who actually have all sorts of competition built into their relationship. They are competing across the board. They have competing, like their political aspirations. David has been anointed king by the, the mouthpiece of God. And Jonathan is the next king by lineage 
And so they have these competing political aspirations. They're, they're, they're positioned for the same gig. And, and the way this works is if there's two people positioned for the same gig and the gig is king, the one who doesn't get it dies. That's how that works. They don't get sent over to another kingdom that's secondary and say, well, now run this thing. It's, you die. They should be, at the, at, the, at the core of it, enemies. But they're not because they have something that is deeper between them, and it's a love for God. So we see this like beautiful, beautiful friendship. In, in 1 Samuel 18, 1 through 4, it says this, and this is after David comes back from killing uh, the Philistine Goliath, and it says this, it says, as soon as, Dave, as, soon as David finished take, uh, talking with Saul, so he, he kills the Philistine, talks to Saul, he does the whole deal, and he, he says this, he says, Jonathan's life became bound up with the life of David. And Jonathan cared about David as much as he cared about himself. From that point forward, Saul kept David in his service and wouldn't allow him to return to his father's house. And Jonathan and David made a covenant together. It's a pinky promise. My daughter just made me do one of those this morning. I don't know what I committed to, but I'm scared about the consequences if I renege. It's, I mean, apparently this is it. That's the pinky. Anyways, I digress. Jonathan cared about David as much as he cared about himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David. What's the difference in the robe Jonathan's wearing and the robe David's wearing? Jonathan's is a royal robe. David's is a shepherd's robe. He also gave him his armor as well as his sword and his bow and his belt. It says David went out and was successful in every mission Saul sent him to do. But here's what Jonathan did. Jonathan said, I recognize something in you that is incredibly special, that is God-breathed. And not only am I going to celebrate that, I'm going to join with it. Because your special doesn't make my special any less. It's just that you are special and I'm recognizing it. And I can be special too. And I don't have to prove my specialness by denying yours. Because the God I love is the God you love. And there is something in here, in you, in the way you carry yourself, in the way you submit to the will of the Father, in the way you do life, that I want to be a part of. So this relationship goes beyond ourselves. It's a friendship outside of our own benefit even. So we see this friendship that is incredibly intimate. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's one of those things that's like, wow. You take off your robe. You give it, it's, it's really impactful. But the story gets complicated, and that's where we're going to be today. And we could talk about spiritual friendships, and we should. And in some ways we will today. But I, I want to talk about how David handled being the one chased, not the chaser. Being the one that's at risk of losing his life because of the anger of an authority instead of the other way around. Because it, the first scenes we have with David is he goes against Goliath and he kills him and then Everywhere he goes, there's victory. But what happens when David is in a different role? 
What happens when David is now being chased? What happens when his life is in danger? What happens when he is insecure about his future? What happens in his relationship with God and himself? What happens when he's oppressed? It's not something he's experienced to date, apart from being the youngest of a bunch of brothers. Okay, real quick story, right? Uh, I'm the oldest of six. There's five boys, and then my sister was the last one born. And, like, poor, poor sister. But my dad is the oldest of five, and there's four boys, and then the youngest is his sister. And, but my dad was the oldest and picked on my uncles all the time, like all the time, like brutal. And one of the ways he did this, and if you see him, I would ask that you heap shame on him for this. <laughs> I know they've forgiven him, but it still needs to be talked about. But he would, he would get them on the ground because he was bigger, and then he'd he would kneel on top of them, and so their, their arms were in between his knees like this, and then he would spit towards their face, and then like try to suck it up quick before it hit him, which is terrifying, and as far as physics go, the probabilities that you get it isn't 100%, right? And, and he will, I will defend him, he, this was before he knew Jesus. So this is as a 12-year-old follower of the devil <laughs> and all the evil that is in that kingdom. Anyways, he married my mother, and at this point now he is, he follows Jesus, he's been to Bible school, he's like, you know, my mom doesn't know the, the cruel spitting Mike Carter that everyone else knew. And they're visiting for the first time in the home, and his brothers are now uh, older and bigger than him. One of them is a Division I college football player. The other one is a Division I college wrestler, and uh, my dad's not. My dad is like a, a cute little left-handed artsy guy. And, and so they decided that this was the time that they would repay my father for what he did. So they get on top of him and they're spitting on him. And my mom, all of a sudden, as the story goes, they don't hear anything. And all of a sudden, somebody got hit in the back with a frying pan. And it was my mom rushing in to defend my little artsy father from her. Anyways, that's another, I don't know why. That's the brother thing. The only time David felt oppressed is when somebody was down spitting in his face. Anyways, we find ourselves in the story of David and Saul and Jonathan in that Saul is in immensely jealous of David because the favor of God is on him. And the more Saul tries to do things on his own, the more he falls out of line of what God had called him to do as king, and the more he realizes that he is not protected. And the less protected he feels, the more he acts out irrationally, and it's just a vicious circle. But yet the hand of God is clearly on the life of David. Everything he touched, there's favor. Everywhere he goes, he's recognized. Every battle he fights, he wins. And, and not only that, but, da but David has joy. He's free. And Saul isn't. 
Saul has no joy. He's not free. He's bound inside because he cannot do what he should do. And then he's angry that he has to do anything. And he's looking for a way out and he can't find it. And the only thing that makes somebody who is bound angrier than being bound is to see somebody else free. And Saul can't stand it. Again, the only thing that makes somebody who is bound up more angry than the fact that they're bound up is to see somebody else free. And that's what's happening. And so he's done with David. And he's devising a plan to kill him. And David is made aware of it. And he, he hides. But before he hides, he talks to Jonathan. And they develop this plan of communication. And Jonathan is still saying, I don't think that's true, but I trust you. I cannot see how my father would do that to you. He loves you like a son. I, I, I cannot see how that would happen. I trust you, though. And so he went to this meal, and we pick up here. So Jonathan is at a meal with his father. It's the first, new moon. I didn't get into all of that. I don't know what all that means. You can look it up yourself. But anyways, it's the first night, David is not at the place he's supposed to be. And the second night, David is not where he's supposed to be. And so Saul asks, and Jonathan lies for him. He says in, 20, in 1 Samuel 20, verse 25, he says, he, he says this. He says, he says, where's David, essentially? The custom is that he's supposed to be here. He's not here. And Jonathan, in verse 28, says, he, David begged me for permission to go to Bethlehem. He said, please let me go because we have a family sacrifice there in town, and my brother has ordered me to be present. Please do me a favor and let me slip away so I can see my family. And that's why David isn't here. Jonathan lies. And Saul responds this way. He gets angry at Jonathan. And he says this in verse 30. He says, you son of a stubborn, rebellious woman. Which, by the way, at some point, we'll get into the misogyny of a lot of what the Old Testament culture was. This is ridiculous. But he says this. He says, do you think I don't know how you've allied yourself or allied yourself with Jesse's son? Shame on you and the mother who birthed you. As long as Jesse's son lives on this earth, neither you nor your dynasty will be secure. Now have him brought to me because he's a dead man. Think about this. Jonathan is next in line. This is his father speaking to him, who curses him and his mother and his family and his dynasty and says, if you do not bring David, who is nothing to us, then you die. That's a huge deal. What does Jonathan do? He goes and tells David. I'm going to skip through a lot of this stuff. I'm going to get to this part. He tells David. See, one of the things that David does in a time of oppression is he trusts God. And he trusts the relationships that he's made covenant with. He trusts the relationship that is centered on something bigger than the circumstances of a kingdom, the circumstances of a position, the circumstances of political aspiration, the circumstances of a shared ideology. He trusts Jonathan because they're committed to each other for something bigger than anything. Amen. The creator of the universe, their love for God and his love for them. 
In a moment of oppression, David doesn't like sort of just go into battle mode and say, everybody out. It's me against the world. In a moment of oppression, he says, God, I trust you. And then you, Jonathan, come close. And Jonathan does the same. See, David understands in this, and I think it's the echo of the heart of God, that our relationship with God is more than enough, but we are designed for communion with others. And that sometimes rescue comes in the most miraculous and unbelievable way, and oftentimes rescue comes from the relationships around us that are centered on, rooted in, and lived out with God and his love for us and our love for him at the very center of it. See, their bond of friendship is God-centered, and they point each other back to God in the midst of trouble. In verse 42, they've, they've communicated, they did the secret handshake, and they figured out how to talk. And it says, Jonathan said to David, go in peace, because the two of us made a solemn pledge in the Lord's name when we said the Lord is witness between us and between our descendants forever. Then David got up and left, but Jonathan went back to town. See, they made a pledge of something to something to someone that bound them that was deeper than even the family obligation that Jonathan had to his father or the, the, the Jonathan's very saving of his own life and his position or future position as king. That is crazy. See, the echo of God's heart in David shows that deep friendship connected to the person, to the creator, and to the love of, that he has for us is more powerful than we could ever imagine. But it leads to mutual sacrifice. When Jonathan, die, when Jonathan dies, because Saul and Jonathan die in battle, David weeps for him and celebrates his life and honors him. He even goes as far as saying, the love that I have received and have in relationship with Don, Jonathan is deeper than even the love of a woman. I don't know what that means to David. What I know it means is they had a profound love for one another. And here's how it plays out. When kings die, their families are obliterated. That's what happens. When there's a conquest, when one kingdom falls and another kingdom rises, then all of the ancestry that could ever make a claim to the throne are, are killed. That's what happens. It's, it is the, the consequences of these kind of transactions and transitions. But we see in in. In David and Jonathan, there is something different. There is a covenant that is about loving one another with God at the center. And so David has faced oppression. Uh, he's been oppressed. He's been chased. He's been followed. He's been, had his life at risk. And he has depended on God. And he's depended on friendship. And then when David is out of that position and he has lost his friend 
and he is now king, he gets to operate any way he wants. And this is what he does in 2 Samuel 9. David asks, now that he's king, he said, is there anyone from Saul's family still alive that I could show faithful love for Jonathan's sake? And they say, there was a servant from Saul's household named Ziba, and he was summoned before David, and, he, and they went through, are you Ziba? Yes, I'm Ziba. Yes, did you know them? Yes, I knew them. They do this thing. He says, they ask, is there anyone left? from Saul's family that I could show kindness to for the sake of Jonathan. And he said, one of Jonathan's sons whose feet are crippled. Now let's take a step back. Feet are crippled. Cultural interpretation is worthless to society. Let's be honest. We see Jesus dealing with cripples all the time and when he heals them, they, people are like, well, who, let's get back to whose fault it was. Was it his? Was it the family's fault? I mean, they, they're the scourge of society. You do not have any usefulness to society because you are crippled. Therefore, you have no value. And not only do you have any value, your value is so low, and we are so worried that whatever cooties you have will go to us, you're here. David said, where is he? And they found him and they brought him there. And they brought him from the house and this man, and his, his name is Meph, we'll call him Meph. It's like, it's like 30 letters. There's like a, there's numbers in there. It's weird. Um, yeah, there we go. People that can say names. Um, so Jonathan's son and Saul's grandson, he brings him and this man falls to his knees. And he's bowing low out of respect. And, and he says, I'm at your service. And in verse 7 of 2 Samuel 9, it's, David says this, don't be afraid. Because I will certainly show you faithful love for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will eschew what is normal for my societal realities. I will eschew what is not only acceptable but also expected of me as a new king dealing with somebody from the old king's family. I will let go of the culture's value assessment of you for the sake of your father. I will restore to you all the fields of your grandfather. So you, scourge of society, son of a dead son of a dead king, I will give you the land of your grandfather and you will eat at my table always. See, the echo of the, of the heart of God through the life of David shows restoration, rescue, honor, 
value life given where it is undeserved. Given out of relationships that are uniquely connected to the creator of the universe and to others who place God at the center of their lives before everything else. So that echo from David becomes even, the heart of God echoed through David becomes even clearer through the reflection, the clear reflection of Jesus. As we see Jesus loving the least, inviting the lost, giving respect and honor to those who have no value in their cultural systems, giving, speaking to people with their names, not their condition. Engaged in relationship, independent of what you can do for me or what I can do for you or what we can gain from each other, but engaged in relationship because you are and I am connected to the living God first and foremost. Because because of that, I recognize the specialness in you is not a, a threat to the specialness in me. See, it, when David was oppressed, he turned to God and the relationship with Jonathan. He trusted God and the God that bound him and Jonathan together in relationship. And as such, when all fell apart, he was able to honor his commitment to Jonathan. He was able to honor the family of Jonathan and Saul even when it made no sense. There's something profound about the friendship of Jonathan and David, and then there is something really profound in the fact that in John 15, 5, Jesus says this, I don't call you servants any longer because servants don't know what their master is doing. Instead, I call you friends because everything I heard from my father I have made known to you. Everything that could possibly echo out of you of the heart of God is there for you. What do we do? What do we do in a life that continually pulls us to isolate? That continually pulls us to like find ourselves in a place as a victim or in a place in, a, in, in society where we, are, we, we feel like our value isn't being recognized and we're looking for it and we're looking for it, what do we do? What we do is what David did. We find the people who God is the absolute center of all of their existence and they surrender everything else to that. And in those relationships, we speak life. We trust. We celebrate the special in them without, real, without fearing what their special will do to our special. We trust God and lean into those relationships. Because as powerful as David's faith in God was, and as the worship team comes up, we're going to get ready to close, but as powerful as David's relationship with God was, it was not enough to sustain him without relationship with the creation of God as well. 
specifically through Jonathan. When we say David is a man after God's own heart, we see this echo of the heart of God. We see it played out in the way he handles knowing that Jonathan's son is still alive. Where not only does he fulfill the commitment he made to Jonathan, he could have done that in the most basic way, but he goes above and beyond. He restores to him what was lost. He gives him a place of honor in the culture that he would not otherwise have had. And he gives him a place at his table, a place of belonging. And Jesus is doing that more completely and clearly than we could ever understand. Jesus is saying, here's your place. Here's your value. Here's your worth. Here's your, here's your honor. Here's what's been lost. Here's what's been stolen. Here's a place at the table of belonging. So that in deep and intimate connection with Jesus as friend and others as friends, as communion, when the battle gets tough and those in authority, those that could harm us, those that have ill intent for our lives when they are pressing in and we are hiding, we don't know where to go. And even though we're crying out to God, he seems really far and distant because I can't see him and I can't touch him. I can't smell him. We lean in to the communion of relationships that are forged in something bigger than affinity. That binds us even if, in the case of Jonathan and David, our political aspirations are competing. That binds us even when it means that in the case of Jonathan, I have to put my own life at risk and dishonor my own family because above everything, the Lord's my Lord. Because everything, the covenant I've made with you, David, is one where God's the center of it. So David leans in. And in that, he's able to make decisions that allow for his rescue from the hand of God and also the hand of Jonathan. And in victory, he doesn't forget about Jonathan. He remembers him and honors his family. We're not promised much in life. The scriptures promise us a lot of things, but one of them is that there's gonna be times we're on the wrong side of the story. We're not always gonna be the hero. We're not always gonna be the victor. We're not always gonna have things go our way. There's, we're not always gonna have everybody think we're great. We're, we're gonna be in positions where we are 
in the crosshairs of someone or something or somewhere. May we respond the way David did. May we trust God. And may we lean into the relationships that are forged with God at the center. And when victory comes, because it does, may we honor, may we respect, may we use the opportunity to give value and worth to others. May we bring people to the table of belonging that weren't there before. Let's worship.
glory and honor. You are worthy of it all. You are worthy of it all. For from you are all things, and to you are all things. You deserve. Jesus. He is worthy of it all. Can you hear me in the back and on the top? Thank you. God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God. That's powerful. There is one God, one mediator between God and man, and his name is Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. So you were not only made for communion with each other, you were made for communion with the Lord one God, one mediator between God and man and his name is Christ Jesus and that's the truth and that's the gospel truth. And that truth transcends time and space and wars and pandemics and contexts and marriages and divorces and crises. It transcends it all. One God, one mediator between God and man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for many you included so I don't know how you came to be this morning but I do know that between God and you there is Jesus and he is here and he wants to come into your heart so if that's you this morning and you say yes 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 I am tired I am in crisis I don't know what the world is going to be. There's something that remains, and that is Christ Jesus. So just say this prayer with me, with faith in your heart. Say, Jesus, yes. Say, yes. We also, we sing that song so many times. We say, yes. Say it with me. I say, yes. I say, yes. I say, yes to the mediator. Tell him, I'm sorry. Forgive me. You know, church, we all need forgiveness. Because from the moment you enter this world to the moment you're going to leave this world, you will make mistakes. And sin is here. But that mediator took it upon himself to take that away on him, on that cross. So that through faith, you can be free. So just say, I'm sorry. And thank you for taking my place. I do not understand it all. But I understand that I am loved. Thank you. Because through it all, all my mistakes, I am loved by God. 
Today in nursery, the kids went like this. Can you go like this too? And they said, I am loved by God. You are here. I don't care what you did. You are loved by God. And everybody said, amen. We're going to have prayer teams on either side here. We'd love to pray with you. Or if you're in the sitting down and just want somebody to pray with you, just put your hand up. Online, there's a, a link also for prayer. You know, as, as we look at the life of David, and we look at it specifically through the story of him being chased by Saul, him being at risk, I see a deep, profound trust in God to be his provider, his protector, his savior. And I see a deep, profound trust in Jonathan, but I don't think it's the person of Jonathan. I think it's that Jonathan, he trusts that Jonathan has surrendered to God in a way that makes his words true and real for his life. My challenge for you this week is this. Trust God profoundly. And as a follower of Jesus, who says that God is the center of your life, that's where everything is rooted and planted, make your life be one where people will trust you because they know that the words you speak and the way you act are rooted in the love of, for God above all else. We need Jonathans and we need to be Jonathans. As you do that this week, this is our prayer. May the living God que el Dios vivo creator of all the heavens and the earth. Creador del cielo y de la tierra. May he richly bless you and keep you. Que él te bendiga y te guarde. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Que él haga su rostro resplandecer sobre ti y te dé su gracia. You have been and continue to be extravagantly loved by our Father. Ha sido y sigue siendo extravagantemente amado por tu Padre celestial. Go do the same. Ve y haz lo mismo. Have a great week of worship. There's people here to pray with you and we'll see you next week. See you Sunday.